figures in the paper. Um, he's had a campaign of death threats and intimidation over his pro-Israel views. Um, he uh, been stalked by a man called Ali who actually murdered uh, the MP David Amos for South End. Uh, previously, he had gone to Mike Freer's office to attack him, but he wasn't there, so he went to David Amos. Um, he says he's an outspoken supporter of Israel, MP for one of the most heavily Jewish constituencies in the country. Mr. Freer was used to intimidation, abuse, and even death threats. An organization called Muslims Against Crusades urged supporters to target him referencing the stabbing of Labour MP Stephen Timms by an Al-Qaeda supporter. The group posted a picture of Mr Freer online with a message, let Stephen Timms be a warning for you. And he had numerous letters, uh, emails, abusive notes left on his car, mock petrol bombs placed on the steps of his constituency office, which was actually burnt out on Christmas Eve this year. So, Mike Freer... Um, he's our local MP. We have one or two issues because he is openly homosexual, but he also does stand for Israel. And I went to a meeting with Barbara where he, uh, at a Jewish home actually, where he was speaking about his work on behalf of the constituency and how he had, on numerous occasions, stood up for Israel and for the Jewish people and against anti-Semitism. And as a reward, he's been attacked and threatened with death threats. Uh, which is very alarming, actually, and now been driven out of politics. And it tells you something about the state of our country and the dangers which are facing us. And dangers are facing us if you stand for Israel. Um, I had an email from somebody who connected with the church, doesn't come here regularly, but he said, uh, because he stood up for Israel, he's now finding himself frozen out of his church. I uh, wonder how many people are like that. And there's this... Obviously, because of what's happening in Gaza, you have all sorts of people turning against Israel. But there's now a spirit of anti-Semitism, which is manifesting itself in many areas of our society. And it's very concerning. Also, the Foreign Secretary, David Cameron, said this week that we should recognize the Palestinian state even before they've come to an agreement with Israel. Which, if you understand the politics, is actually saying that they've got a carte blanche to have what they want. And as far as Israel is concerned, to have a Palestinian state on, that, on its borders in the present situation is really a death threat to Israel. And so we live in times when it's very difficult, and it's getting more and more difficult to stand for Israel. And we have to pray ourselves that we can stand in these days. Um, I'm planning to do a talk, uh, not next week, because Andy's talking about the week afterwards, on can we stand with Israel in the present situation. And we'll probably advertise that and perhaps even ask some of our Jewish friends to come along. But it's really getting more and more difficult. And we need to know a bit about the background and also the theological background and the prophetic aspects as well. Um, so that's a little bit. But uh, we're going to talk on a different subject tonight. Um, so I'm going to continue what I was looking at. Oh, there's no Bible up there. Can we get me a Bible? Can <laughs> uh, I can? No, there's a pimple. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay, yeah. Okay, the, um, last week I spoke about conspiracies uh, and, 
in a talk this tonight, um, more from the Bible, talking about conspiracies then and now. Uh, if you were here last week, you may remember that I spoke about the fact that uh, you have two possibilities. There's a conspiracy aiming to change our society and bring in a new world order along the lines of the World Economic Forum, Great Reset, and the Euro United Nations Agenda 30. So we have an agenda which is trying to bring about some kind of global government. You also have an opposition to that from the Russia-China aspect who want to bring in their own world order program. And the alternative to that is next one, that the world is spiraling out of control towards chaos and the collapse of societies, both east, west, north, and south. And the question which we ask is, is all this leading us to the final antichrist system indicated in Revelation chapter 13? Now, I said a bit about that last week. I want to say a little bit tonight about the issue of conspiracy in the Bible. I looked up the word conspiracy in the concordance. It comes about 15 times, only half of which are relevant to our subject tonight. And the one which is, I found was really relevant was in Isaiah chapter 8. So we're going to have a little bit of a Bible study on Isaiah and come back to the theme of conspiracies then and now at the end of the talk. So Isaiah chapter 8, I'm going to take it up in verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus with me, to me with a strong hand and instructed me what I that I should not walk in the way of this people saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. Nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. He shall be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. As a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, uh, and many among them shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Verse 16, <clears throat> bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord, who hides his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him, here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells in Zion. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. They do not speak according to this word. It is because there is no light in them. They will pass through hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom and anguish, and they will be driven into darkness." Uh, in this account, you've actually got two levels of conspiracy, uh, which if you read through the chapters 7 through to 9 of Isaiah, uh, you see spell out in these two levels of the Israel-Syria conspiracy, which comes against Judah. Uh, remember that Israel in the northern kingdom is divided from the United Kingdom of Israel in the days of Sol after Solomon. And you have Syria and Israel coming together against Ahaz, the king of Judah. And you have a second conspiracy in which Judah is looking to Assyria, and Ahaz is working on to save himself from the Israel-Syria conspiracy. Um, you put the map up and just show you what I'm talking about. 
Here you have at the bottom there in the purple, that's the kingdom of Judah. See, it's smaller, it's around Jerusalem. You go further up, one in blue is the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. And in the days in which this prophecy is given, then the northern kingdom of Israel is making an alliance with the one to the north of that, which is Syria, around Damascus. So you have Israel and Syria coming against Judah. And the king of Judah is a man called Ahaz, who's actually a very weak and poor king. He's not a, really a believer. He's working on his own plan to save himself from this attack from the north by trying to make an alliance with Assyria, which is to the north of Syria. It's actually off the map there, but to the north of Syria is the kingdom, the rising kingdom of Assyria, uh, which is today the part of the north of Syria and uh, the northern part of Iraq. So they're coming together against Judah, against Israel and Syria. Now you've got these different forces coming together. Which one is from God? Neither of them. Uh, in fact, both of them are actually against the God of Israel. And they're actually the produce of conspiracies against God by people who reject the truth and reject the testimony of those who believe. You have the unbelievers in the northern kingdom of Israel who should know better, but they don't. And you have the unbelievers in the southern kingdom of Judah, particularly led by their unbelieving king, a man called Ahaz. Into this situation, you have a group of believers who trust in the God in this situation, principally the prophet Isaiah and his disciples. If you come paying attention to that scripture, you said, here, Isaiah says, here am I and the, the people who are with me, my children whom the Lord has given me. It says, we are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. So in the midst of this situation of general unbelief, Turning to the wrong source, you have those who will turn to the true God of Israel in the person of uh, the Lord, led by the prophet Isaiah. And if you read through this passage of Isaiah, you find that it is the section which is known as the Emmanuel section of Isaiah's prophecy. Emmanuel means God with us. So ultimately he's saying, don't look to these human alliances, but look to God. He's the one who's going to bring you together. He's the one who's your trust. He's the one you should be trusting in. And beyond that, he's looking, of course, with the famous uh, prophecy of Isaiah 7:14, which speaks about the virgin bringing forth a son and calling his name Emmanuel, looking to the person of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, who's the one who's going to bring all this together. And who is the antidote to fear? Uh, one of the reasons why these people are making this uh, alliance is because they, A, the ones who want to control them and conquer them, and the people who are in line for being controlled and conquered are motivated by fear to find someone who's going to sort them out. And that's going to have a lot to do with what's happening now. You have people who want to control you, want to, uh, and conquer you, and there are people who want to find somebody who's going to stand by them, but not turning to the true God. So a bit of background then. Ahaz is the king of Judah. We have quite a bit about Ahaz. I'm going to share a little bit from the Bible about Ahaz. He's a legitimate king, first of all. He's of the line of David. Therefore, he has a right to sit on David's throne. Uh, he is a legitimate king, but he's also very weak. He's immoral. He's breaking God's commands. And he's fearful that he's going to be deposed by an alliance of these two kings, the king of Syria 
man called Rezin, and the king of Israel uh, from Samaria called Pekah. So in 2 Kings chapter 16, we read of Ahaz. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Romalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel, and he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Then Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Romalia, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. So you've got Ahaz in Jerusalem, bad king, king who's not trusting in God, and he's being threatened by these kings from the north. If you turn back to Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 4, you find that Isaiah takes up this story in his prophecy, which leads up to the Emmanuel prophecy of the Messiah. It tells us how Rezin and Pekah have made a plot to combine together to attack Ahaz and to remove him with their own king called the son of Tabel. Uh, Tabel actually means worthless in Hebrew. So you've got this first conspiracy. They want to remove Ahaz, who is a legitimate king, but a bad king, and put their own king in his place. So Isaiah chapter 7 says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. It was told to the whole house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved, as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Sha'ar Yashuv, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. So it tells us here that Ahaz is fearful. In fact, it says, His heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. You've got a man who's in a state of fear and terror. Look at the world today. You've got a lot of people who are in a state of fear and terror at what's coming on the world. They're looking for someone to sort it out and protect them. The person they look to is the Lord. But do they? Does Ahaz? No, he doesn't. Notice that he's also going to the aqueduct where he's going to meet with Isaiah. Uh, why would he be going to the aqueduct? Well, an aqueduct is what brings you water. And he's going to the aqueduct because he's afraid that these kings are going to come against him, besiege Jerusalem and cut off his water source. So he's checking up on his water source. But if you look in history, you'll find that Hezekiah, his son, actually diverted that water course through Hezekiah's tunnel, which you can read about in the book of Kings. And you can also go through, if you go to Jerusalem, and I've been through it, uh, Hezekiah made a tunnel to divert the water so that Jerusalem would have a secure water supply in a time of siege. That's why Ahaz is going to the aqueduct, and that's why Isaiah meets him there. And Isaiah gives him a message which should be actually quite encouraging to him. He says, don't be afraid of these two kings you're afraid of because they're going to be cut off. They're not going to defeat you and destroy you. 
verse 5, it says, Because Syria Ephraim and the son of Ramali have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years Ephraim will be broken, so it shall not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Basically what Isaiah is saying to him there is don't be afraid of these kings to the north because if they come against you they're going to be defeated, they're not going to prevail against you. Don't be afraid of this conspiracy to depose you, it's not going to come to pass. Soon Ephraim is going to be broken. Ephraim is another name for Israel, the northern kingdom. No longer be a people. That's going to be fulfilled in the impending invasion of Assyria, which is going to come against the northern kingdom and deport them from the land there. And he says, if you will not believe, you will not be established. Now, that's a funny way of putting it, isn't it? Why don't you say, if you will believe, you will be established? Uh, I think there's a kind of hint there because of Ahaz's unbelief. puts a double negative. He says, if you don't believe, you're not going to be established. Implication, you should believe and be established, but actually Ahaz is an unbeliever, and he's working out on his own little plan to save himself from this threat. Come to that in a moment. Meantime, Isaiah gives him the Emmanuel prophecy, one which you probably have heard before, uh, which he tells him about Emmanuel, which means God, God with us. Gives him even this as a sign, word used in Hebrew, oat, is a sign which implies a supernatural sign. And he goes beyond God being with us now to a personification or a final fulfillment of God being with us in the person of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, and his virgin birth. So taking it up in verse 10, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz says, I will not ask nor will I test the Lord. Uh, Ahaz is actually being a bit religious here. Um, Isaiah has offered him a sign. God's offering him a sign, saying, I'll give you a sign. He says, oh no, I won't do that because you shouldn't test the Lord your God. Uh, He's kind of trying to cop out because really he doesn't actually want a sign from God because he doesn't want to get too close to God because he he knows that God's actually not too pleased with him. And then we have the famous verse, Then Isaiah says, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, Interestingly, if you read this in the Hebrew, uh, you'll find that it changes from you in the singular, when he's talking to Ahaz, to now you in the plural. This actually does come out in the authorized version, where it goes from you to ye the old English. Uh, And here, at this point, God is no longer talking just to Ahaz himself. He's talking to the whole house of David. And he's saying to him, basically, I'm fed up with you, fed up with your unbelief. I'm fed up with your disobedience. And I'm going to give you a sign, a sign which will go beyond anything which you can see today. I'm going to give you a sign of the virgin, the unmarried woman. Hebrew word is Alma, which means a young woman of marriageable age, but who's not yet married. So the implication is she's still a virgin and she's going to bring forth a son and you're going to call his name Emmanuel, which is a Hebrew word of him, im with anu, us, el, God. God with us. Uh, 
So this son is going to be a supernatural one who's going to be born as a sign. And a sign in Hebrew means a, a supernatural sign from God. So God is giving Ahaz here the sign of the virgin birth of the Messiah. And this is a prophecy for the whole house of David. He's going to be the one who's going to produce the one of the line of David who will be the messianic king, Yeshua, the eternal one. One who's going to fulfill the prophecy which was given to David way back in the time of when he was king by a man called Nathan, the prophet, where we read in <coughs> 1 Chronicles 17, verse 11, And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you. He will be, one of, your, he will be of your sons. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you, and I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Uh, one level, this does speak about Solomon, who's going to be the great son who followed David, and the line of kings is going to come out of David, but obviously it goes way beyond them because it speaks about someone who's going to have an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. So there's a bit of a logical problem here because no king in the earthly form can have an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. They're all going to die. And the line of David died out nearly 2,500 years ago or more. So what does it mean? And clearly this is talking about the one who's going to be great David's greatest son, who is the Messiah. If you go on to Luke chapter 1, verse 30... When the angel appears to Miriam, known as Mary, and informs her she's going to have a child, going to have a son, even though she's a virgin, tells her, do not be afraid, Miriam, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and should call his name Jesus. He'll be great and be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see there, you've got the three things, the throne, the house, and the kingdom, and the eternal throne, the eternal house, the eternal kingdom. And all of this is going to be fulfilled in Yeshua, in Jesus the Messiah. So this passage in Isaiah, in which Ahaz is afraid about kings coming to depose him, gives God the opportunity to point forward to the one who is the king of kings and lord of lords, who is the Messiah, who's going to come of the line of David and have an eternal house, an eternal throne, and an eternal kingdom. And if you go through Isaiah 7, 8, you come to Isaiah 9, and in Isaiah 9 you have the famous uh, words which are often cited at time of the birth of the Messiah, where it says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder, he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So there's a prophecy given there which speaks about a son who's going to be born as a child, given as a son. So he's clearly a human coming in some human manifestation and yet he has a name which is called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So how can he be born as a son and yet at the same time be the mighty God, 
be the everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. The only way you can resolve that is in Yeshua, in Jesus the Messiah. Interestingly, the word everlasting Father uh, has the implication of the Father, the author of everlastingness. So Jesus actually is the everlasting one, but he's also the one who gives us everlasting life. And he goes on to say, of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end upon the throne of David over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So looking forward to a time when the Messiah is going to reign on the earth, that hasn't yet happened. It's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus. Time right now, he's reigning in heaven and he's reigning in the hearts of those who believe in him, giving them eternal life. But the point in this prophecy here in relation to our theme actually is that in the midst of all these failed governments and failed plots and conspiracies, God is promising the answer which is in himself and in the promise of the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, going to give the ultimate answer and the ultimate good government. So that should all be good news for Ahaz. But Ahaz is not interested because he's not a believer. So coming back to Ahaz, what does he do? Ahaz actually rejects Isaiah's counsel because he's working on his own conspiracy, his own plan, which is to make a pact with Assyria to defend him, to keep himself in power through an alliance with the kingdom of Assyria, which is a rising power to the north of the kingdom of Syria. So 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 9, uh, verse 7, sorry, so Ahaz sent messages to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria needed, heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and he took it and carried it to keep its people captive to Kia and killed Rezin. So what does Ahaz do? He says, I'm going to make a pact with Assyria, which is stronger than Syria and stronger than Israel, and they're going to, his Syria is going to defend me. Good idea, isn't it? No. Notice he says here, I am your, he says to the king of Assyria, I am your servant and your son. What a disgraceful thing for someone who's the king of Judah to say. Supposed to be the servant of God and the son of God. So not the son of God, but a son of God, serving the Lord. And he appeals to this pagan king, who's actually a very brutal and a savage king, to come and save him from his enemies. You know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. It's a phrase from that area. But it's not a good principle. It should be turning to the Lord. And Isaiah tells him that it's a big mistake. goes on to tell him that in the end this Pekah and Rezin conspiracy from Israel and Syria is going to fail. These two kings are going to be removed by the power which Ahaz is now making his peace with, the power of Assyria. And when he's done that, then he's going to be, Assyria is then going to become a threat to Judah, a much more serious threat than the others were. So moving on in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 7, says, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty. The king of Assyria and all its glory, he will go up over all his channels and go up over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. 
Here's another reference to Emmanuel. Be shattered, all you peoples, be broken in pieces, give ear, all you from far countries, gird yourselves and be broken in pieces, gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Now what Isaiah says here is, the one you're putting your trust in, Assyria, is actually going to come and invade your land. It's going to be like a river overflowing into your land, and you're going to face the wrath of Assyria. They're going to come into your land, O Emmanuel, not with us, but Assyria is going to take you over. That's the big danger you're going to face now. But he says, even this is not going to stand. He says, take counsel together, it will come to nothing. The Assyrian invasion will come to nothing. Speak the word, for it will not stand, for God is with us. If you read that in Hebrew, where it says, for God is with us, it's key Emmanuel. So this invasion is not going to stand because of Emmanuel. So Assyria is not going to be successful in overthrowing uh, the north, southern kingdom of Judah because of Emmanuel, because God is with us. Now that works on two different levels. Because God is with us, God is going to save them. And we'll see he's going to save them actually not through Ahaz, but through his godly son called Hezekiah. But also God's going to save them because of Emmanuel, because of Yeshua, of Jesus the Messiah. God actually has to save the southern kingdom of Judah from the Assyrian invasion because what happened when the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom was that they deported them and they made them intermarry and they lost their identity and they imported non-Jews into the land of the northern kingdom of Israel who became the Samaritans. If they'd have done that to the southern kingdom of Judah and deported the southern kingdom of Judah, then the southern kingdom of Judah would have ceased to be a people and basically the Jewish people would have been wiped out, in which case you wouldn't have had the line which would go through to Emmanuel, Messiah, Yeshua, several generations later. When the Babylonians deported the Jews from out of the country, they kept them as a unit, and in the next empire came uh, the Persians under Cyrus, uh, gave the order for them to go back to the land and continue to be a people in the land, preparing the way for the Messiah to come uh, several generations later. So there's a double meaning to that phrase, because of Emmanuel, because of God's purposes for Emmanuel, for the Messiah to come, he's going to save the southern kingdom from the invasion of the Assyrians. <clears throat> and Isaiah the prophet is going to make a major part in this. So going back to what we read about in the beginning, you have the conspiracy, then you have Isaiah, and the children who are with him are for signs and wonders in Israel. They're going to be the people who are going to stand for the Lord. And through Isaiah's ministry, and through the godly king Hezekiah, who follows Ahaz, they're going to be saved from the Assyrian invasion. Let's read what Isaiah says about the Assyrian invasion in chapter 36. So chapter 36 of Assyrian, uh, uh, Isaiah, the Assyrians now come down against Judah and surround Jerusalem and besiege it. So now they're in big trouble. They haven't got the northern kingdom. They haven't got Syria coming against them. They've got someone much more powerful, the rising Assyrian empire surrounding Jerusalem. And a man called the Rabshakeh stands on the walls and he starts preach, speaking to the people inside saying, you've got to surrender because there's no other alternative for you. We're going to come and invade you and take you away. So surrender. Uh, verse 13, it says, Then the Rabshakeh stood up and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, Hear the words of the great king, O king of, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you. 
Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver you. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So by this time, Ahaz has died, by the way. He's been succeeded by Hezekiah, who was one of Israel's, Judah's really good kings, a man who really followed the Lord. So he's now faced with this threat. And he goes on to say, uh, verse 16, uh, do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me, and every one of you shall eat from his own vine and drink from his own fig tree. Every one of you shall drink the waters of his own system until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered, from its, delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Indeed, these they have delivered. Have they delivered Syria, Samaria, from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Well, it sounds quite logical. He's saying none of the other countries have been able to deliver themselves from the Assyrians. All these countries to the north, they've all been taken. Their gods haven't failed them. Have failed them. They haven't been able to save them. So your God won't be able to save you either. And it's a big challenge. It's a challenge actually to the true God, to the living God. He's saying, don't trust in your God. He can't save you. These other kingdoms have all fallen and their gods have failed. Therefore, you will fail too also. So it's a challenge. And if you carry on in verse 30, chapter 37, Hezekiah then prays to the Lord. And this is one of the great prayers which you'll find in the Bible. Hezekiah's prayer in verse 15. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are the God, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the, gods, the kings of Israel have laid waste all the nations and their lands, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Great prayer, isn't it? He's making a contrast there between the gods of the nations and the God of Israel. The God of Israel is the true God, the God who made the heavens and the earth. He's saying, okay, these gods didn't save them because they're not gods. They're just the works of men's hands. But you're the true God. You can save us. When we come to this confrontation I'm talking about in the end times, you're seeing that people will turn to other gods and they won't be able to save them. But those who turn to the true God, they will find that, that God is able to, the true God is able to save them. And we read how God answered his prayer. Verse 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow here, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, he sh by the same he shall return. He shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000 when the people arose early in the morning, they were, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed 
and went away, returned home, and remained in Nineveh. It came to pass as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch his god, that his sons Amramelech and Sherezar struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Ezhahadon, his son, reigned in his place. So the Lord intervenes and the Lord comes and he destroys the armies of the Assyrians. The angel of the Lord goes out and kills them and Israel is saved supernaturally. And this incident illustrates a major truth which is relevant to us today. There are people who are trusting in gods which are not gods. People are trusting in ideas which didn't come from God and they're all going to fail. Uh, and there is a remnant of people, a handful of people who are, as Isaiah and his Children were for signs and wonders to the Lord. That doesn't mean they're doing signs and wonders all the time. It means they are signs from God of the truth. And these ones are going to stand for the Lord and they're going to be vindicated in the day of trouble. Who are these people? Oh, it's the people who believe in the true God. The God who made the heavens and the earth. God and Father of our Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach. If you look at this incident, it illustrates what we read earlier in Isaiah. Don't say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. Nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow, him you shall fear. Let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many among them shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken be snared and taken. Speaking there about a separation between the, within the Jewish people, within the visible people of God, which can also be seen as a separation within what we call the professing church as well, between the people who are true believers and those who are not. Between those who trust in the Lord and those who don't. For those who don't, it will be a snare which will lead to their downfall. Uh, Isaiah goes on to say how they're going to turn to mediums and wizards, in other words, to false prophets and religious deception going to lead them into spiritual darkness and bring a snare and a trap. A snare and a trap is something which Jesus also spoke about in the last days concerning his return, Luke 21. He says, take heed to yourselves. Uh, verse 33, this is, take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare upon all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. There is a snare coming and it's already here. A snare which is going to trap people in something which is going to lead to their destruction. And that was the same thing which is happening in the day of Isaiah. Uh, there were those who were turning to mediums and to wizards, to false prophets, to false religion and trusting in uh, this uh, Assyrian people to deliver them. They're going to be deceived. They're going to be lose out on what they hoped they were going to get. And Isaiah's prophecy tells us that God's going to have the last word. God's going to vindicate his people. In this case, Isaiah and his disciples. And the king, Hezekiah, who turns to the Lord in true faith. And then it says the Lord's going to take up the government. In Isaiah chapter 9, we have the passage about the, uh, the Lord <coughs> and the government being upon his shoulder. Uh, the good king who's going to come out of all this trouble. 
one of the Jewish interpretations of this passage of Isaiah chapter 9. Unto us a child is given, unto a son is given, government will be upon his shoulder, called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, One Jewish interpretation of that is it is actually about Hezekiah, the king who follows the bad king Ahaz. There is an element of truth in that. It is partly true. It's not the whole truth, but the fact is that there's going to be a king who'll be under the Lord, who'll be serving God, and who'll bring the people back to God and would bring deliverance to them. But of course, it's ultimately pointing much beyond Hezekiah to the true rule of God under the Messiah, Yeshua, who's going to come of the line of David many, many generations later, and is going to be the one who fulfill the prophecies of the suffering servant Messiah, which we know about in Isaiah 53. And he's going to come back again in our time to fulfill the other prophecies concerning the reigning king Messiah in person of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And it's all therefore pointing to the greater fulfillment of all this in the second coming of the Messiah. After the failure of the great global conspiracy and its defeat at the last battle in Jerusalem. So let's go back to the present time. Can you see any parallels in what I've just said with what's happening now? I'll try and spell it out if you can't. Uh, Last time I said that there were actually three levels of areas of conspiracy which are working in the present world situation. And they're promising they're going to save us from danger. Uh, Dangers like COVID, dangers like climate change, dangers of world war, dangers of financial clash. Uh, Going to be this force coming together to save the world and to bring us a better world. But they won't. They won't because they're not based on what God says. And in the present time, there are rival conspiracies taking place. Which one are you going to support? Ultimately, only God's going to bring the victory. And the word of the Lord today is to trust in him. Basically, just put briefly before you three possibilities of the conspiracy for our time. One, you've got what we call the New World Order, dominated by Western powers, European Union, United States, its allies, our own government taking part in it, uh, the World Economic Forum, and the United Nations with their Great Reset and their Agenda 30 to bring all the nations together in order to save us from coming climate change, from COVID, from pandemics. Uh, Basically, they're working on an apparently peaceful, equitable world order project under the United Nations with some gain of global control. They're also working to suppress anyone who's against them. So there's a more sinister side for it working to prepare for a war against opponents of the project. They have an ideological aspect, and basically the ideology, you could say, is liberal, kind of left-wing, pro-LGBT, pro-all-faith-being-together agenda, which is fundamentally anti-Christian. They may have a kind of nominal Christian backing, but the, if you follow through the agenda, it's basically anti-Christian. As far as Israel is concerned, they may have some kind of alliance to Israel, like the United States does, and back Israel up to a point. But if you follow through what they really want, they want to establish a two-state solution, which if you understand all the politics, which would mean the demise of Israel as a Jewish state. So ultimately, they're working against Christianity and ultimately against Israel. 
You have a second world order project whose leaders are Russia, China, and the BRICS countries. That's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, with other allied nations, including Iran, North Korea, aiming to bring another large number of countries on board from Africa, from South America, and to challenge the Western-based world order project. Uh, we want to remove the dollar as the world reserve currency and remove United States uh, dominance. Basically, this group of countries are all dictatorial regimes, and they want to impose some kind of dictatorship in which they control the people. And the people, they want to encroach some kind of way to bankrupt the United States, Western-based one. And then when it comes to Israel, ultimately they're seeking the destruction of Israel via uh, the war of Gog and Magog. And God is going to save Israel as he did Judah from Assyria. You've got a third group of people who are the Muslim nations who are openly seeking the destruction of Israel, the coming of the Mahdi, their end-time agenda, and responsible for the wars and strife in the Middle East, also for the oppression and political, spiritual oppression of people living there. Their aim is the global imposition of Islam worldwide, the end of Christianity, and the end of Israel. So all of these groups are actually anti-Christian when you come down to it. Uh, so you have a question, who are you going to support? Which one do you favor? Uh, or do you favor none of them? Uh, interestingly, there's some end-time Christians who are actually supporting Russia and Ukraine because the Ukrainians are backed by the World Economic Forum and the European Union. So they think we've got to be on the side of the Russians, which in my opinion is utter folly because Russians are up to no good whatsoever um, and are themselves an antichrist force, as is China. Also, you're going to see that many people in the world, most people in the world, are going to turn against Israel, especially as we approach the end-time scenario, including most of the church. So we have this world situation, and it's pretty frightening. Uh, and so people are looking for somebody to save them, just as Ahaz was looking for someone to save him from an invasion coming against him, looking for someone to be the deliverer. And I think that's where the Antichrist is going to come in. He's going to offer them peace and safety, and yet he will bring sudden destruction. So what do we do? Well, we have a world situation which is controlled more and more by evil spirits. Devil's coming down with great wrath, knowing he's got to speak for a short time. The book of Revelation speaks about giving his power to the beast, leading to the Antichrist society of the end times. Now, we can be sure from the Bible that all of these conspiracy theories which I've mentioned to you are going to fail just as the uh, conspiracies I spoke about in the book of Isaiah failed. They'll do enormous damage before they get to the point of failure. And the group of people who are going to be saved out of the mess are those who believe in Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. In fact, they're the only people who are going to be saved. That's why it's important that people today believe in Jesus. As Isaiah and his disciples were signs and wonders to their generation, so God is actually saying to us that we are signs and wonders to our generation. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to be doing signs and wonders. It means that we ourselves, the church, is a sign to the world. The true church is a sign to the world of the place of safety and the way of safety through faith in Jesus the Messiah. <clears throat> in all of these situations I mentioned, God has his people, whether it's Western-based societies like our own, or the Russia-China one, or the Muslim one. 
you're in the Russia-China one or the Muslim one, you're going to face pretty severe persecution. But in the end, you're going to face the victory. And the answer in every situation comes back to Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. He's the hope for the world. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Going back to the Isaiah passage, Isaiah is telling Ahaz, in all of these situations, you've got to look to one who is greater than you are. You've got to look to God, and God who is going to reveal himself in the Messiah, who is Emmanuel, God with us. And God's saying to everybody in the world today, you can look at all these situations, you can be fearful, and they are fearful. Don't look to your systems and your religious systems or your political systems or your leaders to save you. Look to God. Look to Yeshua. He's the one who's going to save you. He's the only one who can save you. And you're going to see also people are going to come and face, there's going to be a lot of hostility towards those who believe in Jesus. And you're going to see increasing hostility towards Israel because Israel is actually, the restoration of Israel is, remains part of God's plan for the redemption of the world and the second coming of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And so we have a situation in which we're going to face hostility from all of these forces coming against us in the world. And as far as the Jewish people are concerned, the, people, the only people who are actually going to give the true answer to Israel and to the Jewish people are those who believe in the Messiah. Uh, whether they're Gentile Christians or Messianic Jews, they're the ones who have the answer. Today, when you look at uh, our relationship with Israel, with the Jewish people, you'll find that there are Jewish people out there who are very pleased when we stand up for Israel and we say that we believe that there is a future for Israel. They're not so pleased when we say that the future actually involves believing in Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. But it does. And in fact, we can't actually root out, we can't separate these two issues. In the end, we have to point people to Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, as the answer. We have to give both a hope in Jesus, but also hope politically for Israel to survive, but also hope in Yeshua, the Messiah. When we look at the state of the world, also there's only one answer to all of these crises which are coming upon the world, and that is repentance and faith in Jesus the Messiah. That's why whether we're living in China or Russia or the United States or Great Britain or in any of the Muslim countries, the message is still the same. I mentioned it this morning. One message, repent, believe the gospel, flee from the wrath to come, believe in Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And we have the good news that actually in the end our God reigns. He's the one who has the final word. He's the great I am who's going to have the last word in all that takes place. We've already read from Isaiah chapter 9. speaks about the government being upon his shoulder, upon him being the one whose kingdom is going to advance forever and ever. His kingdom, there's going to be no end. And the good news for all those who believe in him is that we are part of that eternal kingdom. With the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David to order and establish it with government for judgment and justice from this time forward, even forever. Time coming when the government will be upon his shoulder. Uh, when the government's upon his shoulder, it's going to be slightly better, or well, not slightly better, it's going to be totally different from the government which we have now. And finally, in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, we have a great word which speaks about the 
kingdom of our God, kingdom of this world becoming the kingdom of our God, of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 11, verse 15 says, Then the seventh angel sounded, there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord Almighty, God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Already heard about the one who is and who was and who is to come. That's our Lord. Because you've taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. There's a day coming when that's going to happen and the kingdom will become the kingdom of our God, of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. So don't trust in the fading kingdoms of this world, but trust in the kingdom of our God and in Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer, and I'll hand back to Andy to sing our last hymn. Lord, we do thank you that we do have a great hope in you. We thank you that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you that you've come in the person of Yeshua, the Messiah. And as we see all the conspiracies and all the plots of humans at this time, we thank you that we do have a great hope in the one who will not fail, will not deceive us, and will not let us down in the person of Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, and that your kingdom is an eternal kingdom which will never end and which will never fail. And we thank you, Lord, that we can trust in you. So help us, Lord, to have faith in you. And we pray for the peoples of the world today who are being pushed this way and that by different forces. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you'll raise up those who can speak to people, both here in the West, in countries like Russia and China, uh, the Muslim world, and across the world to point people to the only answer that there is in Jesus the Messiah, our Saviour and Lord. Amen.